We can understand meditation practice as an investigation of who we are, an investigation of our bodies, which we do through attention to the breath, attention to the subtle energies of the body, through attention to movement and walking. It's an investigation of our minds, coming to understand on a deeper level the nature of thought, the nature of emotion, the nature of consciousness or awareness itself. It's also the investigation of silence. My first teacher, Manindraji, once gave a three-hour talk, somewhat ironically, on 21 kinds of silence. So there are levels and levels and levels. When we use the word mind, the investigation of the mind or the nature of mind, it's important to understand that we're using this word in a particular way. Because often in the West we think of mind as meaning intellect, something to do with our thought process. But mind in the Buddhist sense is much larger. It includes all of these things I've mentioned. It includes emotion, includes feelings. It includes the nature of awareness. And as many of you probably know, in many languages, especially Asian languages, the word for heart-mind is the same word. It's just in the West we have somehow separated these two. So when you hear the word mind, think of it in terms of big mind, including all of these things. Now what's so interesting about this investigation through meditation is that we begin to see that our stories, our personal histories are all different. We each come from different backgrounds and countries even, and different education, different family situations. So our stories are different. But the very nature of the body, of the heart, mind, is the same in all of us. The nature of the knees that hurt. The nature of anger, the nature of sadness, the nature of love, of kindness, of compassion. It's the same now as it was in the Buddhist time. And it's for this reason that the Dharma is called timeless. Because it's not about the particular conditions of a time. It's about the fundamental nature of who we are as human beings. And the great implication of this, and the great wonder of it, is that the more deeply we understand ourselves, naturally and automatically from that, the more deeply we understand each other because our nature is the same. There are two perspectives which complement and support each other in this journey, this journey of understanding, of awakening. Two perspectives about meditation. And the first of them is understanding meditation as a science of the mind. We can really approach it from a very scientific point of view in terms of understanding its nature, how it works, 
And as you, both through meditation experience and through study, come to know of the Buddhist teachings, it's quite remarkable. The power of his enlightenment came from, or resulted in, this tremendously deep and subtle understanding of how things work. He was able to sort it out in the most remarkable way. And what he saw was that our lives are not unfolding accidentally. They're not unfolding randomly. There are laws governing the unfolding of our lives. And one of the most important of them is the law of cause and effect. And when we reflect on this, we see that understanding this law of cause and effect opens up for us whole new possibilities of happiness because we can understand and create the causes for our happiness. Just as through not understanding, we create the causes for our suffering. Now, this is so easy to see in the physical world, the law of cause and effect as it works in nature. And we've been... There's just one simple example of this, which is so obvious. When we pollute the environment, when we pollute the air, we pollute the water, all kinds of toxic wastes, what happens? We suffer. There's a result from those actions. It's not that the actions are happening in a vacuum without consequences. They do have consequences. And we lead less healthy lives. We start poisoning the planet. You know, it's taken us an amazingly long time to figure this out. And just the reverse is true. You know, when we take care of the environment, we clean up the air, clean up the water, we lead healthier, happier lives. So this cause and effect relationship is not that subtle. It's not so hard to grasp. The Buddha took it a step further. He saw that there's, in addition to these law in nature, in the physical world, there's also the same law of cause and effect happening within our minds, governing how our lives unfold. And of course, as most of you know, he called this the law of karma. That is, that our actions have consequences. But right here is a very critical point. He didn't just say that, yes, the actions that we do have consequences in the world. He pointed out, and this is a subtlety of understanding, that what most determines for our own lives and those of others, what most determines the fruit, the consequence of our actions, is the motivation behind them. But it's not the action itself which is of paramount importance. It's the motive behind the action. He pointed out that if we act motivated by greed, motivated by ill will or hatred or anger, motivated by ignorance, those are the karmic seeds of suffering. When our actions are motivated by generosity, by love, by kindness, by compassion, by wisdom, when those are the seeds 
out of which our actions grow, then the fruit of those seeds is happiness, is peace, is joy. And we can see this in our lives. You know, we see it in ourselves, we see it in other people. Somebody's practicing anger in their lives. What kind of world are they creating around themselves? Somebody is practicing kindness or practicing generosity. What's the world that they create around themselves? There's a Tibetan saying which sort of encapsulates this wisdom and it's very powerful if we can really hold it deeply. It says, everything rests on the tip of motivation. And that's how important the motivation is. Everything rests on the tip of motivation. But it's not always clear what our motivations are. Even when we recognize the importance of motivation, sometimes they're obscure or they're conflicted. You know, we don't quite know what's going on. Or a series of opposing ones. I'll just share with you one story which has a little background to it. The background to it is the understanding that among Dharma teachers there's a fierce competition for a good story. (laughs) A good story is gold. Okay, that's the background to this story. (laughs) So I was on retreat. I was doing a (laughs) self-retreat. And I was reading some of the Buddhist texts. And I read something and I thought, boy, that would make a great story for a colleague of mine who was writing a book on faith. That was my first thought. Oh, I have to tell her about this. And then my very next thought was, no, I'm going to keep it for myself. (laughs) And my next thought was, no, that's just being selfish. Give it to her and more will come back to me, you know, <laughs> kind of karmically, if I give it away. I thought, well, that's, again, just full of self-reference, you know. <laughs> what can I get out of it? So I'm just tracking my motives here. And then I said, no, I'm going to give her the story, but I'll tell her what I went through. You know, <laughs> kind of this little dance in my mind. I think I was hoping to inculcate some kind of... Uh, that she'd owe me something <laughs> from my giving her this story. And so I went on and on and on. My mind just kept you know, getting lost in this whirlwind of conflicting thoughts. And finally, you know, I just began to wonder, where in this morass of thoughts is there any moment of purity? Is there any moment of genuine motivation, of generosity? And I realized that there was a moment like that. And it was actually in the very first moment. The very first thought I had was, yes, this would be a good story. I would have given it to her. And what was so interesting was in watching this whole process and this confusion of motives was the realization, and this was very encouraging to me, the realization that even when we have a lot of conflicting motivations, we can always come back 
at the end of their run, at the end of the, the drama, we can always come back to that first moment, you know, of purity, the first moment of generosity. And so it's always available to us, even if we need to go through a certain process to get there. So in the end, I did give her the story, no strings attached. She didn't even want it. (laughs) Which is the end of the story. (laughs) Motivation. And the Buddha emphasized over and over again it's the motive in our minds that is the determining factor. In any moment, are we cultivating wholesome or unwholesome motives? And it's very tricky because sometimes we can be doing things that bring happiness in the moment that are actually unskillful. And when you just look at the range of addictions in the world, that we all have. In the moment, it may bring a certain kind of pleasure, but in the long run, it brings suffering. And likewise, we can be doing something that's unpleasant in the moment and actually be leading to a deep and genuine happiness. Like the first day of a retreat. (laughs) I probably went through a lot of unpleasant, you know, restlessness and the body hurts and the mind's not settled and, and yet it's leading somewhere. The Buddha spoke very directly to this point, and it's so counter to our cultural conditioning that I wanted to read from from the sutta, from the discourse the Buddha gave. And this is the Buddha talking about two kinds of happiness. When I observed that in pursuit of such happiness, unwholesome, unskillful states of mind increased, and wholesome states decreased, then that happiness is to be avoided. And when I observed unwholesome and unskillful mind states decreasing, and wholesome mind states increasing, then that happiness is to be sought after. Well, for me, that brings another whole dimension with which to look at our lives it's not only about what makes us happy, but that's not the measure. But the real measure for wise action is what motivations, what mind states are being cultivated. If they're unwholesome, the action is to be avoided. If they're wholesome, the action is to be cultivated. So it gives a very clear view, very clear map. One of the consequences of understanding that our lives are unfolding lawfully, and this is one meaning of the word dharma. Dharma means law or the truth, that things are not happening accidentally. Things are following certain laws. A consequence of this is the realization that each one of us, for each one of us, the path of awakening the path of a genuine happiness, the path of peace is possible. We can create the causes and conditions for liberation. 
It's not by accident, and it's not that it's limited to a few special people. No, yes, they can get liberated and I can't. Because it's lawful. And the great gift of the Buddhist teachings is that he both understood and expressed how to go about it. One of the things that first hooked me on practice, I'd gone to India after my time in the Peace Corps, gone back to India to look for a teacher, ended up in Bodhgaya, the place of the Buddha's enlightenment. At that time, it was very small, and just a handful of Westerners. I met my teacher there, Munindraji, and one of the first things he said to me, it's what sealed my fate, he said, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. And it was so simple and made so much sense. There was nothing to join and there was no big ritual and no belief system. If you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. And the clarity and simplicity of that was tremendously enticing. The word vipassana, which is this kind of meditation, in Pali, it's a Pali word, language from the Buddhist time, and it literally means seeing clearly. Pasana means seeing. And the prefix v, vi, means clearly or with special depth. So what we're practicing is seeing clearly. That's the, that's the essence of the meditation. And so meditation as a science of the mind means we develop, cultivate, refine our powers of observation. And all the tools and all the methods and all the techniques that we use are really skillful means to accomplish this refinement. Can we make our power of observation so clear that we actually do see how things are, how they're working? So what are some of the tools that we use? The first, and it's very basic, to a retreat is the simplicity of this form. You know, it's not very complicated. We set up the retreat sitting and walking, sitting and walking, sitting and walking occasionally eating and sitting and walking. And so there's not a lot to do. And the very simplicity of the form allows the mind to become less distracted, less confused. And in the simplicity of form, we begin to see more clearly what it is that's going on inside our bodies and our minds, precisely because we're not so distracted. We create a reference point of some primary object, like the breath, like a sound, like the movement in walking, and we simply train ourselves over and over again to come back to that primary object. I'd like to read something from a Catholic saint named St. Francis of Sales, which points to the universality of this training. Because when I read this little piece, it's it was exactly what we're doing. 
He said, if the heart wanders or is distracted, bring it back to the point quite gently. And even if you did nothing in the whole of your hour, but bring your heart back. Even though it went away every time you brought it back, your hour would be very well employed. Does that sound familiar? And this is just what we're doing. We're bringing our heart back. Now you may think that after this first day of the retreat, you didn't have any particularly great insights yet, but you did. And I'm going to tell you what it was. <laughs> and I guarantee that everybody had this insight. There's, there's no one in this room who has not seen this. And this first insight, which is incredibly important, is the understanding and the clear seeing of how often our mind wanders. Is there anybody who hasn't seen that? It's quite amazing. <laughs> we see how often our minds are lost when we don't know what's going on, when we're not present, when we're caught up you know, in stories or daydreams or memories or whatever it is. Don't underestimate this understanding because most people in the world don't know this about their own minds. You go up to somebody on the streets of West Ogwell <laughs> or wherever we are <laughs> and ask them, you know, oh, does your mind wander? Oh, no, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> because until we actually take the time to sit down and observe our minds, we don't know this. You know, we sit and we watch the breath once or twice, and then it's like we're off and running. We're carried away by the thoughts and fantasies and memories and judgments. We start reliving old hurts, and it's amazing. We get lost in things that don't even have to be pleasant. You know, we can just be dwelling in unpleasantness. <laughs> and even more than that, Often we're lost in things that aren't even true. Mark Twain, who was a great American humorist, he had one line, he said, some of the worst things in my life never happened. <laughs> <laughs> and any meditator will know this, <laughs> because we can get lost in all kinds of mental creations and scenarios that have never happened and probably never will happen. You know, the mind is so slippery. We give it this very simple object of attention, the breath. It's not complicated. It's not that we're trying to visualize a hundred thousand deities in different colored robes, and it's the breath. <laughs> In, out. <laughs> so it's very simple, but it's very difficult. We're with the breath once or twice, and then it slips off, and we hop on this train of association, and it's a very good image. I like that image of a train of association because it's like we don't know we've hopped on this train and we have no idea where the train is going. And it's not like we bought a ticket for someplace. 
you know, and somewhere down the line, it's like we wake up, oh, yeah, we kind of get off the train, and sometimes it's in a completely different inner environment. You know, we can be, have been tangled up in some intense drama, you know, or strong emotion, and yet all the time what has been really happening is we're just sitting here, having lost the breath. Our our minds remind me of a movie theater, going to the cinema. But it's a special theater. It's where they change the film every two minutes. And would you you pay to go to (laughs) that? But that's the mind we're living with until we begin to train it a bit. And that's precisely what we're doing. This first insight of how often our minds wander and get lost is tremendously important because it highlights for us with increasing clarity the importance and I would say even the urgency of learning to stabilize the awareness, to develop some steadiness, some concentration of mind Because often it's not only a question of getting lost in our thoughts. Very often in our lives and the lives of people all over the world, it's also acting out these thoughts. What's happening in so many places of suffering in the world? And just the latest, of course, you know, just the whole disaster in Kosovo, but it's happening in so many places. What really is going on on the most fundamental level? It's people acting out thoughts and feelings of greed, of fear, of anger, of hatred. It's these forces in the mind which, when unnoticed, when we're not aware get acted out, often to tremendously harmful consequences. Now, what's important is to see that it's not only out there, it's within ourselves as well. All of these same forces are at work. The practice of paying attention, of waking up, of not simply getting lost in the train of our conditioning, allows us to begin to make some wiser choices. We can begin to let the unskillful motivations go, not act on them. We can begin to cultivate those things that bring peace and happiness, both for ourselves and others. So we practice using this primary object. In the simplicity of this form of sitting and walking, just as St. Francis of Sales said, Every time the heart wanders, we bring it back to the point quite gently, no matter how many times it wanders. And slowly and steadily, and you will see this over the days, things begin to calm down. The thoughts are not quite so compelling. become a little softer. There's more inner space, a little relief, a certain kind of inner stillness.
One of the things that helps in the development of this concentration or stillness has to do with an understanding of what the basis of concentration is. What are the causes for concentration to arise? And again, the Buddha's clarity is so astounding. He just saw so clearly. There are two factors which, when practiced, result in concentration. So when we understand this, we can practice those two qualities. Lo and behold, the mind becomes concentrated. It's not a mystery. The two factors, or the two qualities, which are the basis of concentration, in, in the Buddhist jargon, it has some, some technical names, which I'll explain. He calls it initial and sustained application. What this means is the movement of the mind to connect with the object, and then the intention of the mind to sustain the awareness. So, for example, with each breath, what we're practicing in order to develop concentration is connecting with the first moment of the breath appearing. It's like a bee going to a flower. Just connecting with the first moment of the breath appearing and sustaining the attention for just that half-breath, the in-breath or the rising movement connecting with the first moment of the out-breath and sustaining for the duration of it. Very simple. Connect and sustain. Connect and sustain. That's what you can be practicing. As you practice it, it gets easier, and as it develops, the concentration comes from these two qualities. So it helps to have a good understanding that meditation is not some mystery. It is a science of the mind. You know, and it's a very well understood science. So as we practice this, we practice connecting and sustaining. It can be with the breath. It can be the same thing in the walking. For just a short one breath, half a breath at a time, and then again, and then again, the mind does begin to get quiet and calm and peaceful. And then we begin to see something through the power of this more restful mind. We begin to understand something that's quite remarkable. When we're undistracted, which comes through the power of concentration, we see how simply and spontaneously and naturally awareness arises. Now, when you practice, when you're sitting and you're hearing sounds and the mind is undistracted, you're not lost in thought, you're not daydreaming, you're just sitting, sounds appear. Do you need to do anything special to be aware of that sound? The birds are hired. <laughs> it's quite amazing. We're just sitting. Sounds appear and are heard. Those sounds are known completely without effort, completely spontaneously, 
in the very moment of their arising because the nature of the mind is awareness. It's not something we need to create. It's already here. We simply need to be undistracted from that nature. Do you see the difference in understanding? If you're thinking, oh, somehow awareness is out there and I do this and I practice for 30 years and maybe I'll have a glimpse of awareness. Well, that's a very tiring, discouraging viewpoint. When we realize that awareness is the nature of mind and that what we need to do is simply to practice being undistracted from it, then over and over again we simply come back to it come back to our own nature. It's very analogous to how the nature of a mirror reflects, is to reflect what comes in front of it. The nature of the mind is to know. The nature of the mind is to be aware. And this reveals itself very simply and very easily with sound, which is why we were emphasizing it you know, in the instructions. And it's the same with each breath or the sensations in the walking. There's something quite miraculous going on. It's the mystery of consciousness. It's the mystery of awareness. Sitting, the breath is coming and going by itself when we're undistracted those sensations of each breath are known as effortlessly as each sound is known. Okay, so this is the first tool of practice, the simplicity of the form, sitting and walking, using the primary object, connecting and sustaining in order to develop this undistracted attention, resting in the nature of awareness. The second tool of practice for developing the science of the mind, meditation as a science, is also a very simple tool, and that is slowing down, developing a continuity of attention. Because as you probably know and understand, mostly our lives are very busy and full and quick and and we're rushing through things. The beauty of a retreat is that there's nothing to do. can really take this time, which is a great gift, to settle back into the moment and take your time and slow down and really be with each moment's experience. What's helpful in training ourselves to do this is to notice the times of rushing. I presume you're all familiar with what that feeling is like, the feeling of rushing. And what's quite interesting about it, it has nothing to do with speed. You can be moving very slowly and be rushing, and you can be moving very quickly and not rushing. Because rushing has to do with that toppling forward where we were ahead of ourselves. We're anticipating where we're going or what we need to be doing. You know, and so notice during the day when you're rushing. Is it during your yogi job, during the work period, 
you know, where suddenly the mind gets caught up in what you have to do and you lose that sense of really staying present and grounded. In that case, rushing might be associated with moving too quickly. But I've noticed times of moving very slowly in rushing. And for me, I notice it on retreat as I'm walking to lunch. (laughs) You know, I'll have been sitting or doing the walking meditation and not rushing at all and very slow and very mindful and then the bell, lunch bell rings. And I can be walking just as slowly, but (laughs) it's like I feel my whole energy (laughs) being seduced by the smells. And it's just so interesting to watch. We can take this feeling of rushing, which is a very noticeable feeling once you you really start paying attention to it, use it as a mindfulness bell. The feeling of rushing itself becomes a mindfulness bell. It becomes a bell to wake us up. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me take a deep breath, settle back, be in the whole body, open to sound, get present again. And you'll find the immediate relief in that. There's a great joy in the practice when we give equal attention to everything we do. Opening a door is equal to watching the breath or putting your shoes on or taking a shower or eating. When we see this, we can really begin to make the whole day seamless. My first sat with uh, my Burmese teacher, Upandita, was very fierce demanding teacher. So it was in 1984, and a lot of the Western Vipassana teachers were sitting with him. James was there also. Very, very demanding, and it was hard. It was a very difficult retreat. One of my colleagues, Sharon Salzberg, she would go in and kind of you know, do the, bow, the bows and kind of give her report on her practice, and she Maybe we'd get one sentence out about, you know, what she was experiencing in her sitting, and Upandita would say, what did you notice when you brushed your teeth? She really had no idea. (laughs) And that's all. That was the end of the interview. And so she had to leave. And the next day she'd come in all prepared for what she experienced when she brushed her teeth. (laughs) Yeah, and again, she'd either say that or talk about her sitting experience, and he'd say, what did you experience when you put your shoes on? This went on for about three weeks when he would not hear anything. And each time, of course, he'd pick out some activity where she had not been paying attention. Well, by the end of that time, she was really mindful. (laughs) You know, it was a great gift. Demanding and challenging, but it really developed that power of sustained, careful observation. Okay, what is going on? Everything is of equal value, equal importance. A retreat is a time to practice that kind of attentiveness. And as James said this morning, which I want to reiterate, it's not a question of being grim or being heavy. It can be done with delight. Just there, present. 
So I want to read something, a story about a famous Swiss naturalist whose name was Louis Agassiz. And I believe he was teaching in America at this time, teaching at Harvard University. And this was written uh, by his student, Samuel Scudder. And so Samuel Scudder was a young student of Agassiz. Agassiz intended, he said, to teach the student to see, to observe. Study nature, he said, not books. So the initial interview at an end, Agassiz would ask the student when he would like to begin. If the answer was now, the student was immediately presented with a dead fish, usually a very long dead, pickled, evil-smelling specimen personally selected by the master. The fish was placed before the student in a tin pan, and he was told to look at the fish, whereupon Agassiz would leave, not to return until later in the day, if at all. Samuel Scudder, one of the students, described the experience as one of the most memorable turning points of his life. This is Samuel Scudder speaking now. In ten minutes, I had seen all that could be seen in that fish. Half an hour passed, another hour, another one. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around, looked it in the face, ghastly. From behind, beneath, above, sideways, just as ghastly. I was in despair. I might not use a magnifying glass. Instruments of all kinds were prohibited. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. It seemed a most limited field. I pushed my finger down its throat to feel how sharp the teeth were. I began to count the scales in different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last, a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish. And now, with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. When Agassiz returned and listened to Scudder recount what he had observed, his only comment was that the young man must look again. I was mortified, still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to my task with a will and discovered one new thing after another. The afternoon passed quickly, and toward its close, the professor inquired, Do you see it yet? No, I replied. I am certain I do not, but I see how little I saw before. The day following, Scudder had a brainstorm. The fish he announced to Agassiz <coughs> had symmetrical sides with paired organs. Of course, of course, Agassiz said, obviously pleased. Scudder asked what he might do next. And Agassiz replied, look at your fish. <laughs> In Scudder's case, the lesson lasted a full three days. Look, look, look was the repeated injunction and the best lesson he ever had, Scudder recalled. A legacy of inestimable value, which he could not buy and with which he could not be parted. So can we bring that same quality of attention to our own lives. And that's the power of mindfulness. We look, we observe, we see again and again and again and again and 
gradually whole new worlds of understanding begin to unfold. Different levels of perception. This is the first perspective on practice. Meditation as a science. That is, it's very exact. We see clearly and precisely what it is that's arising. We understand the causes behind, for example, concentration. We develop those causes. So it's very systematic. It's a systematic development of our minds. But there's a second perspective on practice which complements this first one and fulfills it. And that is the understanding that meditation is not only a science, but it's an art. There's an art to meditation where we see not only what it is that's arising exactly and precisely, we also see how we're relating to what's happening. And this is a whole different dimension. Meditation becomes the art of skillful relationship, becomes the art of true relationship. And it's quite interesting that when we learn about intimacy and relationship in the solitude of our practice, we begin to apply that to our relationships and our lives in the world. One thing that you probably are quite familiar with by now is the understanding that there are many different ways we can relate to our experience. The very same thing happening can be related to in a host of different ways. We can relate to things with a lot of reactivity in the mind, with likes and dislikes and preferences and judgments and aversion and a whole host of things where the mind is reactive to what's arising. Sometimes you can detect more subtle levels of reactivity even in the tone of the mental note if you're using them. You know, where you're noting what's arising in and out, arising, falling, the hearing, but the tone of the note is angry or desiring or expecting or whatever. as you continue with your practice, notice the ways you relate to different sounds as they appear. Are there some sounds you enjoy? Oh yes, very open, very accepting. Well, the birds are lovely. How about the sound of the person next to you who can't sit still? You know, and just always rustling and making noise. Are you as open and welcoming of that sound? as the sound of the birds? Probably not. And yet, it's still just sound appearing and disappearing. I had a great lesson in this, tremendous lesson, uh, when I was practicing at one of the monasteries in Burma. Those of you who have been to Asia, especially gone to practice there, know that 
almost wherever you go, it's incredibly noisy. So I was in this monastery, and they were doing a lot of construction. Right outside my window, they were banging metal on metal. They were trying to straighten out these kind of the steel or iron rebars, you know, which they use for construction. And they're just banging them with metal. And this was all day long, every day. It was driving me nuts. And here I made a, it was a major effort to get to Burma that, you know, yeah, I'm going to get enlightened and these guys are pounding away. So I went to Upandita to report. Yeah, and his only comment, I was expecting some sympathy, and his only comment was, did you note it? Did you note hearing? <laughs> so at best, I thought he was trying to make the best of a bad situation. You know, that he really knew how bad it was. So, okay, given how bad it was, just note it. But that's not what he was doing at all. And there was a much more profound understanding that he was trying to convey. And it's a particular understanding and insight that can transform the rest of this retreat. It can transform your meditation practice. It can transform your life. If you get it now. So I'll say it. <laughs> Probably repeat it a few times during the retreat also. From the perspective of awareness, it makes no difference whatsoever what the object is. That our practice is not about getting one experience rather than another. It's not about this gaining idea. From the perspective of awareness, Whatever arises is fine, because what we're practicing is letting go. The nature of the mind is simply to know. Clanging sound, fine. Sound of birds, fine. Breath, fine. Pain in the knee, fine. It is true that some experiences are pleasant, some are unpleasant. Our practice is to open to the whole range of what's happening, resting in the simplicity of that knowing, of that mirror-like wisdom. It's not about having certain experiences because no matter what we have, no matter what experience arises, it's going to change. Guaranteed. So out of this came a great Goldstein law of the Dharma, which I'll pass on free. (laughs) And that is If it's not one thing, it's another. (laughs) Which became just so obvious over all these years of sitting and practicing. If it's not one thing, it's another. And it just keeps changing and turning. 
So can we relax? Instead of this struggle or grasping or desire to have it be a certain way, can we relax back into the nature of the mind, which is awareness, open to the whole range? Makes the practice a lot more joyful, a lot more interesting. So meditation as an art is the willingness to open to the whole range of our experience. Pleasant? Okay, let me be with that. Unpleasant? Good. Let me be with that. Let me explore what that's about. There is no experience at all which arises which is outside of the practice. Well, that's a big relief because then whenever you're in a sense of struggle, Whenever you're straining, you can simply settle back, open up, ask yourself the question, okay, what's happening now? Because struggle always means something is present which we're not accepting. Because if we were accepting it, we wouldn't be struggling. So again, the struggle itself becomes that mindfulness spell. You're straining, you're struggling okay, what's happening? Oh, yeah, there's some tension in my back. Let me open to it. Or the mind is wandering a lot. Let me open to that. Whatever it is. So we see it in our relationship to sound, different sounds. How are we relating to the breath? Very simple. We think it's a very neutral object. But we relate to the breath in lots of different ways. What's the quality of our effort? as we're with it. You know, if it's too loose, if we're disinterested, if we're indifferent, it just slides off. We lose the concentration. If we're too tight, if we're holding on too tightly, we get tense, we get tight. Can we find just the right balance? That's the art of meditation. As you're with the breath, are you filled with expectation? Oh, I'm going to be with this breath and then I'm going to get into a really great state. Can we see that? Can we see that that's how we're relating in that moment, rather than simply knowing each breath as it presents itself? In a very fundamental way, the art of meditation is about trust. It's settling back and trusting the very nature of our minds, which is awareness. Settling into that, letting the whole practice unfold, letting our experience unfold. So in the next days, we'll be including more and more in this field of mindfulness. We'll be working explicitly with the sensations in the body, with thoughts, with emotions, investigating the nature of awareness itself. We bring together Meditation is a science that is developing, strengthening the precision, the exactness. We know what it is that's going on, how it's arising, developing the concentration through connecting and sustaining continuity, primary object, all the tools of the practice. And we also develop meditation as an art, 
practicing the art of skilled relationship. Now, there's one Tibetan practice which is called cutting through. It's a wonderful image because what we're doing in our meditation is cutting through to the essential nature of who we are, cutting through to the very nature of our minds. We begin in some very fundamental way to touch the truth of ourselves. I'd like to close with a quotation from a great American naturalist and writer, Henry David Thoreau. You probably are familiar with the fact that he he went off uh, to the woods to live at uh, Walden Pond. He said, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and to see if I could learn what it had to teach, and not when I came to die, discovered that I had not lived. So this is our woods. And we come here to do just the same thing. Let's sit for a couple of minutes.